First of all, I'm really happy that there's so many people here for EC2 Foundations. I've been doing this talk for uh, close to four years now. It's sometimes called an introduction to uh, AWS Compute. We altered it a little bit based on the audience here at ReInvent. That said, I, I have two, um, hopefully not too annoying things for you. Um, one is, uh, please fill in the, um, the survey so that we know that this is actually hitting the spot with the ReInvent audience here as well, as far as giving you a good broad overview of EC2, our acronyms, and how to just get started with setting up a server in the cloud and then grow from there. And the second one is, which is going to involve a little bit, involve a little bit of work, is um, I, I always do this just to get a, a first feeling because EC2 is a very broad topic. A lot of, you know, it touches upon all our services in, in some way. It's the baseline for a lot of our managed services. You can do more or less whatever with it. And so it's really hard to actually package that into one hour. So I wanted to ask the audience if you please bear with me and help me understand who of you, and there's going to be three categories, who of you is really brand new to AWS and has even just um, a, you know, a challenge with getting to know the acronyms and what the basic steps are and how to get started. And if you could raise your hand, that'd really be helpful just to make sure I cover that as well. And as anticipated, it's a little bit smaller, that part of the audience, as it is at some of our summits. And then I have... A second category that is basically anybody that's, you know, set up an account, maybe kicked the tires a little bit, turned on a server, did some dev and test, and I wanted to see how many of you were in that category. All right, perfect. There's still enough of you to not hopefully get bored. And then the last one is who's running stuff in production, knows a lot about AWS, but wants to see sort of like what's changed in a year and maybe what are some of the new things. Okay. So I'm hoping that I'll satisfy all of you as well, and if not, then I'll also be available for questions um, probably outside of the room so that we don't uh, encroach up on the next speaker uh, for any questions you might have very specifically to your environment. But with that all said, I'll just get started. So EC2 is one of our first services uh, that we launched 10-plus years ago. It's not the first, but it's certainly the baseline of a lot of things. I work for uh, the business development team, which is a liaison between our we call them field teams, the people that engage with you, our account managers, our solution architects, our technical account managers, our support team, and so forth, and the product management team. And in that um, scenario, I work a lot on education internally, but then I also work a lot with our partners and customers to help them transform their businesses. And then on the other hand, get a lot of feedback from you back to the product management team to make sure that we definitely build backwards from your needs to what we can deliver to help you be more agile, save money, be more dynamic, whatever it is that we want to get out of this. So all that said, I have a couple of bigger topics I want to hit with EC2. And the first ones are going to be a little bit more baseline. They're going to be a lot of acronyms, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page in the room, but then we'll move on from there. So we'll go from uh, general concepts and, and, and uh, general understanding of how we think of the cloud, and then uh, move on to what are EC2 instances, what different types are there, how should I think of them, when should I use them, to understanding the storage options that come with those instances, to uh, VPC and setting up a private network within the cloud uh, that can help you either extend your on-premise data center or just have something that's not necessarily addressable or accessible from the internet in AWS. Uh, then you have monitoring logs and metrics. This is mostly meant for you to have full control over your AWS environment and at the same time take action that helps you be more agile, that helps you save cost and only pay for what you truly use. And I wanted to just go over a few of the main things that people do to make sure that they get the most out of EC2 uh, with you. And then security and access controls. There's a couple of uh, basic things I wanted to go over. Whoever has been at the um, uh, keynote this morning might have also seen an announcement we had. I don't have that in here yet. And a couple of other pieces of information that you'll see are a little outdated because I didn't know if it was going to be in the keynote today or tomorrow. Um, around setting up certain things. If you have seen the announcement uh, for LightSail, that's a new service for people that get started to make it really easy and convenient to just turn on a server that uh, helps you configure a security group and a few of the other things we'll be talking about today. So I'm talking about sort of what's behind LightSail as you take the next step to deliver or to, to deploy and uh, use in production your own environment. But LightSail is certainly an awesome way to get started uh, and it will automate a lot of these things for you. It's probably not a good, bad thing to understand them already, though. We'll talk about deployment, and then lastly, we'll also talk about EC2 cost optimization. Now, for each of these steps, 
there's also a separate talk um, yesterday, today, tomorrow around EC2 cost optimization, around uh, different services, around EC2 instance optimization. I would encourage you, if you have deeper uh, desire for knowledge there, to actually uh, attend those as well. So, starting with the baseline, we have what we call regions. It's going to be pretty basic uh, for a lot of you, but I wanted to make one thing clear, because it's being misused by some, even partners, even customers, by other people in the industry. When AWS talks about a region, that's a pretty big concept. That's not just a data center. A region is comprised of multiple availability zones. Multiple or different availability zones within a region still are in close enough proximity to where you can have active-active failover, you have low latency between them, but they have different fail failure domains. So that means if one availability zone goes down, we have another availability zone on a different floodplain, different utility providers, different ISPs connected. And it's a much bigger concept than a data center, and it's a much more robust concept than a data center, and it's very important to understand. And even when we talk about availability zones, that's still not a data center. An availability zone can be one or many, many data centers in close proximity. So regions as a concept at AWS are a very big concept, much bigger than a data center. We have 14 regions around the world. Those are the regions where you can actually turn on a server, where you can actually uh, open up an S3 bucket, where you can use those AWS services. In addition to those, we have points of presence that you can use for the content delivery network to uh, serve some maybe web content to your customers with very low latency, maybe directly out of S3. So we have points of presence and the, the content delivery network. In addition, those regions are where you can actually spin up those AWS services and turn on an EC2 instance. 38 availability zones today and many more regions coming uh, online soon. And obviously a big reason for this is being close to your customers or, especially for enterprise workloads, having data sovereignty and having the data stay wherever you want it or need it to stay for regulatory or other compliance reasons. So an availability zone, as I mentioned, uh, it's a distinct location. Uh, we have two to five availability zones per region. And then again, those are one to, I think, up to six data centers potentially in an availability zone. Low latency interconnectivity is very important because we want for you to have the option to fail over should something go wrong, should you have uh, deployment problems, should there be some other reason that an availability zone might be inaccessible to you, to fail over in a way, active-active, to where there's no uh, effect or no result to your end customer or to whoever uses whatever it is that you're running there in production. In addition to that, of course, you still have full disaster recovery mode. Let's say you're concerned with something wiping out all of Northern Virginia for some reason. You still have the option to do disaster recovery on the West Coast where we also have additional regions or maybe even on a different continent. But this is very important for what we call highly available and reliable architectures that you can build on AWS in a way that it's very hard for a lot of customers to do on their own uh, having data centers in close proximity and then yet another one at the other end of the country and have it all be sort of uniform to where it's easy to fail over, to where it's uber easy to replicate, to where if you have new customers on a new continent, it's easy for you to just roll out the exact same thing again. So EC2, um, there's going to be very little magic in this slide, but I do want to make sure that we have this down. We have regions. We have availability zones within the regions. We have data centers within the availability zones. We have no magic at all, magic at all. Uh, racks and servers within those racks, and we virtualize those servers via a hypervisor. Now, these servers come with more or less four resources that every one of us cares about. One is the CPU, the horsepower, the memory, the storage, and the networking capabilities. And those four resources are packaged up into smaller chunks. A lot of people call those virtual machines. We call them EC2 instances. So those would be the guests on the server that the hypervisor manages. Now, when we first started 10 plus years ago, we had exactly one instance type, one EC2 instance type, and that was called an M1 small. It came with one vCPU, 1.7 gigabytes of RAM, and 160 gigabytes of storage. It was Linux only, and it was on demand only. The words only here are a little bit uh, misplaced because it's, it was a very powerful offering. On demand is still one of the most attractive things about the cloud, obviously, paying for the, or by the hour for the resources that you need. But we have a lot more options today. And these options all came from customer feedback. So that's the best part of my job. Is not, you know, as if you watch the keynote and people clap and they're wowed by the things we deliver, the true magic happens when we deliver something that customers can actually use to build something truly awesome. Best part of my job, hands down. And that all comes from the feedback we get from you. So as powerful as people thought 10 plus years ago, the cloud is, and as many instances as they spun up, very quickly there was feedback around, well, 
I have a workload that's more CPU intensive. I have a workload that's more memory intensive. As much as I want to parallelize and build microservices and, and horizontally scale in the cloud, I have a couple of applications where it's very hard for me to do, so I need bigger, bulkier instances. All that feedback we took back. And so the first thing we did is we created different SKUs of instances. We call these instance families. So that's the first letter in the whole term that you see here behind me, which is the instance type. So an instance type is comprised of three pieces of information and basically three different variables we gave you so as to have more flexibility for your workload. The first one is the family. The family basically um, shows you what the ratio is between those four resources I mentioned earlier. A C stands for compute. Those instances are relatively compute heavy. They offer more CPU versus the other resources from a ratio perspective. And the reason for that is, is that customers had these CPU intensive workloads, and when they maxed out CPU, yes, they could turn on more and more and more instances, but if they underutilized memory and storage and networking, that just meant that for every single instance that they turned on in addition, they were wasting those resources. And in addition to agility and flexibility, the biggest goal for AWS is to help you save cost and truly only use what you need and only pay for what you use. So SKUs are very important. C instances, first thing that we came out with after the M. M is multi-purpose, general purpose. And now we have a couple other ones, and I'll show you that on the, on a, on the next slide. But another uh, thing that we did is that as we um, introduced more powerful networking into our stack, as we got the latest and greatest Intel chips, you just heard this morning about the C5 Skylake with our Intel partnership. We get early access there, and we build it into our next generation of C instances. As we got those uh, better, more powerful pieces to our instances, we wanted to not just split up the underlying hardware more and more ways. We wanted to expose that to you because we saw a need from our customers to be able to use certain AVX instructions, to be able to maximize for a certain chipset. When you're at a certain scale, as dumb as you might want to treat instances in the cloud as much as you want to sort of operate serverless, there are workloads where it makes sense to optimize for those things at grand scale, HPC, large HPC applications, for example. And so we wanted to expose that. So we built generations. So you have the C instance, but then you have the first, second, third generation. With, that, with each generation, you know exactly what chipset you land on. You know exactly what kind of networking capabilities you get. And you can be prescriptive with that by choosing a certain instance generation. And then the last one is the size. And the size is pretty simple. Every time you go up in a we call them sort of t-shirt sizes, small, medium, large, extra large, two extra large. Every time you go up on a size, you still have the same ratio, you're still on the same chipset, but you get twice as much of each of those four resources. So now that enables you to not just horizontally scale, but vertically scale. Get bigger, bulkier machines for those monolithic applications that you might want to move over by a data center transformation into the cloud uh, that you might not be able to or might not want to re-architect from scratch. Um, if you implemented SAP a couple of years ago and it cost you a lot of money and it cost you a lot of time, you might not want to cloudify that application. But you want options to, along with all the other applications, move that out of your data center into AWS and get out of the hardware buying business. Here's a slide. Oops, did I just push that button too many times? I apologize. Here's a slide that puts that all sort of on one spectrum. It's not the prettiest slide ever created. Got to be fair. Um, but it is a slide that's supposed to show you as a larger enterprise or as somebody that builds different types of app applications, you need a home for each of those applications to make sure, again, you have the performance you need and you have the best possible price you need. And on this spectrum here, from bottom to top, we show the memory footprint of an instance. From left to right, we show the vCPU horsepower, so to speak, that comes with an instance. And we want to have instances all across this field here to make sure that you have all the options you need. Now, this slide here is not just the ugliest one I have. It's also the most outdated after the keynote this morning. So while we max out here at 256 um, GB in memory on the largest instances with the introduction, introduction of R4 and I3 and some of those, we actually go up all the way to 488. And then we go not just to 64 vCPU with the new C5 instances, we'll go all the way to 72. The point here is that, for example, the R instances, R stands for RAM, they're in purple give you the biggest memory bang for your buck, the biggest memory footprint, uh, the highest memory per other resources ratio that you can get for those applications that need exactly that. So those would be the purple dots. At the bottom, you have the red ones. The red ones are the C instances. More compute heavy, extend further to the right, aren't all the way as high up on the memory side. And then we have in green our general purpose and T instances. They're sort of in the middle. Uh, a couple of different options there. And then in white, we have instances that come with a lot of local storage that are storage heavy. Uh, the eyes for IOPS, they're SSD-based, a lot of uh, SSD storage uh, locally on the machine. 
And then we have the Ds for disk. Spinning disk, those have a lot of magnetic storage with them. And again, you have all these different options to choose from. Now, options can be also a challenge if you want to know where you land. But the great thing about the cloud is that as you migrate things from your data center or as you build new things uh, natively on AWS, you don't necessarily need to know which one of these you have to have. Now, in the old world, you would have to get budget, uh, get the hardware, put it in your data center, and do a lot of testing ahead of time, kind of having to know what it exactly is that you need and who was ever 100% right. In the cloud, you can start with the closest possible match, maybe something that looks very similar to what you have on-prem, but you can continuously test, and as you pay for things by the hour, again, what Andy said this morning, you have all the flexibility in the world to change. If you have a new application and you feel like it's very memory-hungry and you can re-architect it to be more performant, and all of a sudden it's maybe CPU-hungry or something else, you can just switch your entire fleet. You don't have a piece of hardware that you amortize over five years. So as choice can sometimes be uh, intimidating, it's great because you have that choice not on day one. You have that choice on day one, two, three, four, 365, whenever you want. And you can make changes as you please. A couple of uh, instances, in addition to the ones that were mentioned this morning I didn't have on this slide yet, uh, that I didn't put on the slide because they're way up to the top right corner are the X1s. X1s, Andy also mentioned, uh, we have a couple of different um, workloads that customers run on those, uh, but predominantly we see customers use those for SAP workloads, for example. SAP HANA is a very successful application that moves over, and this is a really big, bulky machine with one or two terabytes of memory. It comes in two different sizes. Um, it comes with 20 GB uh, networking, and it's just a big, bulky beast for those big monolithic applications that need all that horsepower, that need all that memory, and that you can't easily parallelize or horizontally scale. Another one that's a big, powerful machine is the P2. It's a uh, uh, GP GPU or general purpose GPU uh, instance for deep learning and machine learning. Uh, since I'm assuming a lot of you were in the keynote and I didn't know Andy was going to steal all my thunder, I'm not going to go over this uh, slide here in too much detail, but for anybody that's really interested in machine learning, deep learning, uh, maybe certain HPC applications, and needs these big, bulky, powerful machines, come with a lot of horsepower, come with a lot of GPUs, come with actually a lot of memory as well, this is one of the most powerful instances I've ever, or this is in, certain, in a certain sense the most powerful instance out there. Uh, and again, you can rent it by the hour and do tremendous things with it. So again, those two uh, I left off of the, the screen before because it would shrink my very beautiful slide to an even uh, weirder ratio. So I'm not going to do that to you. All that said, we have all these instances and we have all this choice. We realized that out of those four resources, there was one resource that was drastically different from a need perspective for our customer than the other ones. So as you wanted to have a certain memory to CPU footprint and a certain amount of networking with it, we saw that for different workloads, customers needed either a lot of storage, little storage, uh, they could get away or actually needed magnetic storage for certain throughput optimized workloads, or they wanted SSD storage, they wanted maybe certain RAID setups. So we decided for a lot of those instances that we would give you a second lever. While you choose today, for most instances, the memory to CPU footprint and the networking that comes along with it, you have a completely different lever for storage. And that happens by basically giving you a block storage unit that lives independently off of the instance, and that is called EBS. So the, the block storage options you have are the instance store, obviously, with certain instances that come with it. And for a lot of others, you can totally independently choose your EBS block storage. And uh, obviously, in addition to those two, you also have EFS for file sharing and uh, object store, S3 and Glacier. I'm not going to go over those in too much detail. There's uh, sessions specifically for those services. They're their own big, unique services. Uh, but it's certainly something of interest because uh, a lot of customers, for example, have, if they did some Hadoop or big data workloads on-prem, big, bulky machines with a lot of local storage. And sometimes they crunched some data, and sometimes they didn't. But these machines were constantly sitting there. As opposed to going with that kind of model, in the cloud, yeah, we would, again, sort of cloudify and, and um, turn that into an on-demand uh, methodology. So we would encourage you to actually keep a lot of that data in S3 and only pull it out when you actually need horsepower to crunch data and then pull, pushing it back to S3. So I'm putting S3 here as a service uh, with EC2 because for certain workloads, it's a crucial component for you to become more agile, have a centralized uh, uh, storage unit for all your data, and then being able to, in a very cost-effective way and at a high scale, actually crunch data very quickly and very cost-effectively. That said, for local storage and that choice, EBS is what we're going to focus on a little bit. So when we look at EBS, 
as well as S3 and EFS, those are all network-attached options. So there's one uh, unique difference and benefit for the local instance storage, which is obviously the fact that it's local. And for certain very needy, very powerful applications, you actually need, that are very I.O. intensive, you need that local storage. And we have options there. As I mentioned, we have the I instances and the D instances specifically designed for that. For a lot of other ones, that network-attached option is very powerful because you have something that's persistent and independent. You have all this choice around choosing magnetic and, and SSD volumes. You can choose more or less of them, larger or smaller ones. And if you're independent, you can have things like um, uh, replicating that independent block store on its own. So as opposed to having to run two instance fleets where you have the data replicated on an instance level, you can actually just have an instance and EBS attached, and EBS as a service automatically replicates all the data that's on EBS within that availability zone. So again, it's something that helps you optimize. Another thing that we have um, realized, obviously, is that since it is a network-attached um, service, and we have many other services that your instances might need to talk to, maybe the database services, maybe S3, maybe there are web servers that serve content out of AWS uh, into the big wide world, you needed um, to have dedicated throughput to those EBS volumes to make sure that those don't compete with any other throughput you get via the instance. So we have dedicated throughput for EBS. It is um, automatically replicated. And another thing that you can do is you can take snapshots and you can automatically encrypt it by basically just checkmarking uh, that option when you launch an EBS volume. So all those benefits uh, enable a lot of customers to now do very interesting things, things like handling replication just on the data level and not on the entire server instance level. But it also enables you to have developer environments, for example, where, or any kind of user environments where if somebody doesn't work on something or maybe goes home from work, they can detach the EBS volume, shut down the instance, not pay for it as they don't use it, come back to work, launch a new instance, reattach the EBS volume and keep going like nothing ever happened. So a lot of cost optimization and a lot of flexibility as well. If you want to move from a certain instance type to another instance type, you can just detach the EBS volume. There's no data loss there. It's already replicated. You can detach the EBS volume. You can go from a certain instance type as you, again, maybe re-engineered from compute heavy to memory heavy, or as you just wanted to go to the latest and greatest generation, the C5 now instead of the C4, you fire up a new instance, you make a few configuration changes, you reattach the EBS volume, and you just keep going. So all that flexibility is really, really powerful. And with all the changes we've made to EBS from a throughput perspective, from dedicated throughput perspective, from all the benefits perspective, I would highly encourage everybody to think EBS first, unless there's a very specific need around performance or something else where you need the local storage. It's very powerful as an individual service. And sorry, one thing I didn't mention too much is snapshotting. So then uh, the EBS volumes aren't uh, only replicated, but you can also take snapshots from EBS into S3, and you can take incremental snapshots, and you can automate that process so as to be able to back up from S3 and even uh, save even more money by having things uh, just sit in S3 and only be pulled out and create a new EBS volume uh, when you need it or when you need more of the same. So the next topic I wanted to go over a little bit is networking. Um, networking is obviously super important from a security and performance perspective, and it's a little bit different if you work in a virtual environment, and it's yet again different if you work in AWS with it. So something that we had to do in order to enable all these, again, mostly large enterprises to have all the security and all the guardrails and everything they needed is, to what we had to do is introduce VPC. And VPC is basically a capability for you to create a logically isolated environment within AWS where you can determine which instances can talk to which instances, and you can create these subnets around them. You can determine which subnets can talk to which subnets. You can determine which subnets or which instances are even addressable from the public Internet, or which are only acting as a sort of virtual extension to your data center as you maybe move over from a data center to us or as you use something in hybrid mode that are only addressable through maybe a VPN tunnel or a direct connect as we um, have that service as well. So VPC is very powerful and it comes with a bunch of different uh, sub-features, if you will. Elastic network interface, if you have a certain IP address range for your application servers, you can use ENIs uh, to address those, even with instances changing behind the scenes. You can create these subnets I talked about. You can have network access control lists. You can have route tables. And basically all these different features that allow for you to determine how these instances behave, what kind of networking traffic and flow can happen between them within AWS, with other services within AWS, out to the internet, or back to my data center. Um, as far as network topology goes, 
We have these, again, availability zones. Again, availability zones can be multiple data centers, but a subnet can span an entire availability zone. When you run something, which we always encourage you to do in a highly available architecture way, using multiple availability zones in AWS at least, you have to have at least two subnets, because a subnet can only be as extensive as an availability zone. The VPC itself can cover multiple subnets and can be across an entire region. The subnet can only be over an available or around an availability zone. Uh, so this is an area where, again, uh, today's or this morning's keynote was very uh, important. Where if you get started, we have a lot of automation there with LightSail um, and other tools. Uh, another tool that is um, a little bit more prescriptive that allows for you to have a little bit more um, uh, power and and uh, be a little bit more deterministic about what happens when you set up a subnet is our VPC wizard. So there are certain templates that you can modify from there that allow for you to pretty quickly set up something like this. So a sample VPC with two public subnets would be that sort of best practice. You have two subnets, they are addressable from the internet, but you want to have at least two to make sure that you can have two different availability zones where you can load balance between them or failover between them. Then we have a sample VPC with a public subnet and private subnets behind that, and you can then have uh, certain uh, characteristics around how these private subnets can behave either between each other with a public subnet or maybe just back to your data center. And then we have, even have this hub and spoke model. So those are things that are meant to make it really easy for you to get started. Uh, if you want to have even more control, uh, we also have a tool called CloudFormation. And CloudFormation allows for you to create basically uh, an entire AWS environment that sort of rolls out in an automated way. And you can then um, put in parameters around how you want to set up subnets, what instances you want to spin up. And CloudFormation templates are reusable from one region to another. So very powerful, again, for agility, from an agility perspective. If you have a certain topology, if you have certain rules, and you have them all captured in a CloudFormation template, you can then replicate your environments very quickly if you sign up maybe new customers in a different area of the world, or if you want to just have a second stack for lower latency to your customers in the US on the East Coast or something like this. So this would just be a graphical representation of some of the things I mentioned earlier, where you can have, in this case, uh, deterministic uh, variables that allow for these subnets to either communicate with each other out to the internet or back to your uh, data center via VPN connection. This is something that goes a little bit a step further. So as opposed to just being a little bit abstract around what you can do, this is a real use case that I see with a lot of customers, a lot of large enterprises. So we have customers. Uh, for example, this morning in the news, we had Capital One, which talked in a big way about moving to AWS. Last year at ReInvent, we had General Electric. And we have a lot of big customers that want to move to AWS, but if they have tens or hundreds of data centers, obviously that doesn't happen overnight. And the way they usually have to do this is sort of step by step, as they're constrained by developers, as they're constrained by maybe still contracts they have around data centers or hardware contracts. And as they move step by step, they usually have to take a hybrid approach. And we have a lot of options there for you to set up a hybrid um, scenario. And what we usually see as a very lucrative first step into the hybrid world is the very sort of spiky, um, uh, low utilization, but high virtual instance need uh, workloads like, and for example, an HPC or big data workload. If you want to compute something, you need a lot of resources and you want to get the results pretty quickly. But until you do it again, there might be a, you know, some sort of time lag. So if you buy hardware for this on-prem, your utilization is usually pretty crappy. Actually, there's a conundrum that I've seen with a lot of customers, which is some people are very proud of a supercomputer they bought with a really high utilization. And as you talk to them, oftentimes you see that the IT department is doing really well because they have the supercomputer and um, the utilization is really high. But then you see that the user is actually having a queue out the door and you have highly paid, let's say, data scientists that are actually waiting to finally get to the results or to, to finally do the test or prove the hypothesis that they wanted to go, uh, go do. And on the other hand, you have people that want to accommodate um, all their users internally and then maybe buy a lot of hardware that sits around a lot and utilization is crappy. So the question is always, which department is paying for the waste? And in that conundrum, this hybrid approach for a spiky workload into the cloud is oftentimes the first step of realizing gains and benefits super quickly. So in this case here, we would have uh, a financial services customer that had a corporate data center, uh, hooked that up via Direct Connect to AWS, and is able to uh, spin up um, uh, financial grid, HPC application, to do certain tests on a quarterly or monthly basis. They know they need to do this for regulatory and other requirements. They need to have the results by the end of the month, but again, they need that capacity to be there, but the rest of the month is kind of sitting idle. So this is a scenario that I see many, many times where people have those kind of spiky workloads and sort of what they call burst into the cloud. It's usually a first step, and then 
as we see people get used to AWS and progress and whatnot else, uh, we see more and more applications move over. But this is something uh, that's very common from, from what I've seen. Another thing you can do with VPCs is you can peer them. Um, this is a one-on-one -on -one connection between VPCs. Uh, it has this request and accept model, and the reason for that is that we don't only see that within departments or within companies, but you can do things like, uh, for example, uh, connect with third parties, maybe a managed service provider that you work with. So from a VPC peering perspective, you have these one-to-one -one connections, but you can have a central VPC in this hub-and-spoke model that you can connect to, and you can um, build certain architectures and allow for certain communication that way. Uh, it's pretty powerful also, for example, for customers that um, either get ready for um, selling off a department or for acquiring new departments. So in AWS, you don't have to have full data center migrations from companies you buy into yours, or you don't necessarily um, need to look for new contracts because you need to get somebody out of your data center, uh, maybe a department that you want to get rid of or something like that. As long as everything's in AWS, it's as easy as just peering VPC connections and integrating that way as a first step. And obviously, you can take it from there. Uh, but very powerful VPC connections, um, VPC peering connections around uh, third parties, MSPs, or if you want to have the de departmental divide. And it doesn't always need to be for acquisition or, or, or selling options. It might just be for security or other reasons. Now, as powerful as EC2 is, with all these options that Andy talked about, we have sort of, uh, now some people call it the meat and potato instances, and then we have these specialized instances with GPUs and uh, the X1s with a lot of memory and all those things. As, as great as that enormous tool set is, without the automation and the ecosystem and the tooling around it, it's not quite the same. And so when we talk about EC2, we always have to talk about that as well. And again, that was a piece of feedback we got from our customers really early on. It's great that I can horizontally scale, but can you help me actually do that automatically as opposed to having somebody sit there and spin up additional instances? It's a pretty reasonable request and pretty early on. So a couple of things there that really help, a couple of the, the most important um, tools in the tool belt to make EC2 even more powerful are auto-scaling, which I'm going to go over in a little bit again, and elastic load balancing. So our elastic load balancers actually come in, in two versions. There's a classic load balancer and there's an application load balancer. And you can basically load balance on either layer 4 or layer 7. Uh, you have options now to do things like content-based routing and lots of other things. ELB really de deserves its own talk. But um, what's interesting is that ELB is a regional construct. So again, having the term region and understanding what it is in mind is really important here. And ELB can actually sit in front of your availability zones and load balance across different availability zones. And that's where a lot of this high availability and quick failover comes in. Should for some reason one availability zone not be reachable for you or you have some other problem, the ELB on the front end automatically diverts load to the other one. And obviously on the counter side, you have an auto-scaling group. An auto-scaling group is then um, what you set up in order to react to increasing or decreasing demand in order to either keep your performance up or keep cost low. But I'll go over that in a little bit. Now, ELB is this regional construct, and usually when we see it used in, in a best practice way, you can use the timeout configuration, the connection draining, the cross-zone load balancing, as I mentioned, and you can have it in multiple steps within your, or within your entire stack. So when we have a simple three-tier web application, something that you know, a vast majority of our customers have in some fashion as one of their workloads on AWS, we recommend that if they have a website that... Um, serve static content, they usually just put that in S3 and serve it through our content delivery network. You don't even have to spin up a server, you don't need to do anything really. It's two managed services operating perfectly well. But let's say that web application, in addition to serving static content, has a login function where you can say, okay, now just show me the pictures I uploaded or show me the videos I put on there. When you log in, you can basically have that traffic go to an ELB through route um, 53, and then the ELB will divert to the uh, uh, web servers in the two different availability zones that can auto-scale independently. And then behind that, as you sort of built these smaller services that can scale independently, be very performant, be very um, cost-effective independently, as you split that up, you can have ELBs between each of those steps, from the web servers to the application servers to the back end where you have your databases where you uh, keep track of everything, and then you have your read replica or something like that. So this would be a very simple way to unfold a three-tier web application that can now scale at each level, that has replication at each level, that allows for you to be very nimble and at the same time cost-effective and be resilient against failure within even just one region and without setting up a disaster recovery site on the other end of the continent. 
So this is where load balancing, auto-scaling, and the regional concept get really powerful. As simple as it sounds, it's something that's, that's very important to most of our customers. Now, auto-scaling is already a tool that kind of goes into the direction of monitoring and metrics, but, uh, or at least um, uh, it can react based on those. But we have um, something else that's called CloudWatch that's really the central hub to keep track of changes to your environment. Those are things like um, the health of your resources, but even things like CPU utilization or disk I.O. So CloudWatch keeps track of those um, different metrics for you, and it can be the origin for a lot of different actions, again, that you can automate via the tooling that we give you so as to be as nimble and flexible as possible. So CloudWatch is a real-time monitoring service. And uh, again, it can look at those things that um, we are exposed to, and I'm going to go into more detail around that when we talk about security a little bit. When I say we're exposed to, that means AWS manages everything from the physical infrastructure up to the hypervisor. Whatever runs in your instance, we have no access to, we have no visibility to. That means CloudWatch can automatically give you all the data that we can monitor from a hypervisor perspective. Whatever happens in your instance, in your application, uh, in your operating system, uh, is not visible to us. But for those actions that we monitor, you can have certain actions. You can either uh, take an action that actually makes a change to your environment, or you can just use uh, something like an SNS email notification to notify the owner of a service that something is wrong or something might have to be adjusted. Now, CloudWatch also integrates with the console. So in addition to um, automating this or, or pulling down the data uh, yourself, you can just log into the console and see some of those really basic metrics around each of your instances and your entire fleet. In addition to that, we have, and this was sort of, uh, again, customer community-driven, which is super interesting and powerful, uh, certain scripts that uh, we helped our customers build and, and, uh, and make better that you can uh, use and reuse for then the metrics within your instance. So you can then look at stuff like memory usage and other things. So those scripts, and I put a bunch of links in here in my presentation, which is going to be up on SlideShare in a little bit, so those scripts are pretty powerful if you actually want to have CloudWatch have access to those things, and then you can take action even on that. And you can even build custom metrics on top of that. You can also have um, external um, event sources that you can monitor as well, and based on which you can take actions. So a load balancer, for example, or let's say an autoscaler, for example, can add and subtract instances based on CPU utilization or memory or whatever it is that you want to monitor. But you can even look at things like... Um, uh, let's say you're a website that sells raincoats. You can have an external event that monitors what the weather is like uh, via an API call to one of those service providers, and you can have that actually be the reason for an action in an EC2 environment to pre-scale up your web application because you know there's going to be more traffic on your site, things of that nature. So in addition to the metrics which are in real time, we also have logs. And here I'm just going to uh, put up a couple of slides that show you sort of what kind of processes our customers have come up with to take uh, effective action on their instances. So you can have your AWS source, or you can have your custom data, like I mentioned, your external source, let's say the weather. Uh, you can have that metric go into CloudWatch, and then you can t set up an alarm. And that alarm can then trigger a set of different actions. Uh, with logs, you can even uh, look at logs, apply some filters, turn that into metrics, and then set up alarms based on that. When we talk about actions, there's a couple of different actions that are important. Obviously, the ones I already mentioned, add instances, subtract instances. But there's also other ones. If you look at, for example, the health of an instance, you can auto-recover instances. So you already have your uh, Amazon machine image, you have your IP addresses, you have all of that. When that instance fails, we take all of that information and just recover that exact instance on a different piece of hardware. So you can have something like a recover action triggered based on your CloudWatch alarms or your CloudWatch logs. Uh, you can also do stop or terminate an instance if you just want to fail fast and maybe build something from scratch again. So when it comes to security and access control, I saw in the almost four years I've been here a couple of interesting things. A lot of customers, um, you know, it's a very legitimate question, and I've always been asked this, are concerned with security for obvious reasons. What's security like in the cloud? But an interesting development that I've been able to witness is that with that much manpower and uh, woman power, we put behind our security and all these tools that we put in your hands, um, we have had a chance to offer certain capabilities to you that even for large enterprises have become a little bit hard to replicate internally. So I'm phrasing this carefully because I don't want to overstate this. Security 
is always a tricky thing. It's an important thing. But I want you to know that it's one, it's actually the highest priority for us uh, to make sure that we have everything we need to make you as secure as possible. And I phrase it that way because at the core of this, we have what we call the shared responsibility model. And it all comes from the fact that we can do whatever we can do from the physical hardware up to the hypervisor, but whatever happens within your instance is your domain. And so that's where the shared responsibility model comes in. When we talk about enabling all these different certifications on AWS, that means that all these different certification agencies come into our data centers and we check mark everything we need to check mark in order to be compliant with all of these, from SOC to FedRAMP to whatever else it is. That said, there's always a component that you have to do. And our goal is there to give you all the tools necessary and all the best practices that our other customers are using to make it really easy for you to get to that compliance. And those tools are here on this slide. So those are things like the VPC networking uh, capabilities. Those are key management services, Cloud HSM, uh, all the encryption uh, things we do on EBS, but then also the keys you can bring on your own. Uh, those are things like AWS Identity and Access Management and Config and CloudTrail. So CloudTrail is, for example, an auditing tool where you can look in the entire infrastructure, who made which change. Identity and Access Management is a role-based uh, Identity and Access Manager that you can assign to either uh, people or resources within AWS to give them rights to do something within your, within your environment. And the beauty of this is not just having a service that's used by all these different customers all across the world, um, which means that they're pretty robust, but the beauty of this is that we have these services in all these different regions. So if you want to replicate something, if you want to build it again, you don't have to build it yourself. You don't have to build it from scratch. There's all these services that enable you to do this exact same, this exact same thing somewhere else very, very quickly. Once you understand AWS, the replicability and the, the, the agility that you'll get from that is pretty tremendous. Two of the, the first things our customers usually have to learn is um, uh, how to deal with access credentials and key pairs. So in order to actually access an EC2 instance, you have to have uh, key pairs, and then in order to make an API call, you have to have these access credentials where you pass secrets. Again, Light sale is a beauty, especially for my audience in here. People that just get started, a lot of this is automated and, and done on your behalf. That said, if you want to start gaining more control over this, one thing I would encourage everybody to do is to work a lot with IAM, the Identity and Access Manager, because with the Identity and Access Manager, you can actually dole out a role to um, an instance, for example, without actually passing on those secrets and secret keys to that instance. And based on that role, then that instance could make something like an S3 API call to pull data from S3. So one of the first things, if you're concerned with security and if you want to get more hands-on with this stuff, that I want to encourage you to do is to unify around Identity and Access Manager because it's going to uh, spare you a lot of secrets passing and key access management every time individually. You, that can sit within IAM and then you can just assign IAM roles and have that a, a lot more manageable and a lot more secure. That's what I said. <laughs> Sorry. Should have met, I should have moved to the next slide earlier. Um, as far as deployment goes, so one thing, it's already a term I mentioned a couple of times. It was a little bit unfair to the somewhat newer uh, people in the audience. An Amazon machine image is basically the software and the, the image that you run on top of the actual uh, instance. And it is what most people use actually as a deployment methodology when they, for example, autoscale or do certain things within EC2. They treat the instance pretty dumb, pretty um, uh, unimportant, something that can fail. The Amazon machine image is what enables you to reload exactly that instance as you know it onto different pieces of hardware or auto-scale and, and create more of them very, very quickly. And there are a couple of different options here. And a lot of customers start with option number one, which is the Amazon maintained images that we just have up on the marketplace that you can pull down. Those can be Linux or Windows-based. Uh, the Windows-based ones, for example, again, one of the beauties of the cloud is not just that you pay for the hour for the instances, but also for many, many, many ISV packages that are offered on the marketplace and these Amazon machine images that are offered there as well. Uh, so as, as you shut down a, a Windows instance, you stop paying for the instance and you stop paying for the OS. But the Amazon-maintained images are something that you can download. We uh, come out with new versions every time there's new patches or uh, security things we took care of, whatever it might be. Then we have community-maintained ones, and a big powerful thing with AWS now at the scale we're at is that we have many, many very smart users, and they collaborate more and more and more. You see this with, for example, the, the custom scripts for CloudWatch. You see it with community-maintained images, and then also the ISVs that we partner with that have these as well. And then you can create your own images. And 
Your own images can be you know, additional software packages on top of one of those base images, or you can literally start from scratch. Um, there are a couple of things uh, to think of when you think of this deployment. On one side, you can bake an army completely new, and then uh, you can just use that image and reuse it, or you can configure dynamically, meaning you have some sort of base image, and then you have an instance as it launches, download extra packages. Now, the beauty of that is that it's obviously a lot more dynamic. The downfall of that is that um, it takes a little bit longer as you launch. The best option is to do a combination of the two. And actually, instead of a plus, I thought about maybe doing sort of these arrows that point to one another, because it's oftentimes an iterative, iterative process. You download some dynamic stuff, and then as you have critical mass, you actually create a completely new image. But where this really matters is that um, uh, is, is for applications that, for example, have to dynamically scale and have to dynamically scale quickly. So as, as nice as it is to configure dynamically, the time it costs to potentially do that, and I'm saying this a little bit too dramatically, it doesn't need to be that extensive, but the more agile you want to be, the more you want to go with an army baking process that's very quick, that's very re reusable, and that's very standardized. And then obviously you can do customizations on top of that. But for auto-scaling, if you want to add more and more and more instances, it's certainly very beneficial to use an EBS-backed instance, because you have that EBS volume already there, and to use an Amazon machine image that have, you have fully baked, they can just uh, be downloaded and go. When we talk about, oh, sorry, I went the wrong way. When we talk about um, auto-scaling, um, there's three very important components to that. One is the re reusable instance uh, template I already talked about. One is the automated provisioning, provisioning and the, the rules you set up, and one is the capacity. So the two most important things for auto-scaling, for that to be effective, is probably granularity, and the other one is capacity and sort of the vastness of the cloud. When you configure an auto-scaling group, there's three pieces of information you have to have. One is your launch configuration, so that could be your army or maybe a couple of custom rules or things you do after the army was launched. The other one is the auto-scaling group itself. You design which instances are in a group and what their job is. And then the last one is the policy. Based on which variables do you actually start shutting down or adding additional instances? Um, when we talk about the policy, um, there's certain things that I see most commonly. Things like, for example, CPU utilization. If my web application, if uh, across the entire fleet I see more than 70% CPU utilization, start adding instances. And then maybe that's a pretty conservative. It means you're scaling pretty early. Or uh, if it's below 40%, start shutting down instances to save me some money. You can be much more aggressive. But um, again, you can have whatever variable you want to have there. Maybe you have some custom metrics you set up in CloudWatch. Maybe you have completely other metrics you look at where you know my performance is deteriorating or where you, I can start saving money without any effect to my end customer. So when we talk about granularity, which is one of the two things I talked about in auto-scaling, one thing is pretty interesting to keep in mind. So this is um, uh, the 24 hours within a day from left to right, and then from bottom to top, it's the amount or the number of instances that a customer needed in their uh, web fleet in order to accommodate all the requests they got. And part of the beauty, beauty here with the cloud is, as you imagine, especially with new applications or web applications, you don't necessarily always know what your peak demand looks like. And the other question is, is today's peak demand tomorrow's peak demand? And even if you know peak demand and you get all the capacity you needed because you told your finance guy that you need this amount of budget to actually make this successful, that still means that a lot of times of the day, you actually don't use that and there's a lot of waste in there. So the beauty of the cloud is threefold. One is you only pay for what you use. The second is you don't necessarily need to know how, what your peak performance is. And the third one is, even if you knew, if it changes, you can dynamically adjust, or you can have your systems and your tools automatically adjust and add and subtract instances because of the vastness of the cloud. So granularity and scale are very important when we talk about things like auto-scaling. Granularity, to come back to that, in this case meant that a customer looked at scaling via M4 instances because those were instances that they benchmarked based on single units of performance. And when we look at this actual real example, we looked at this customer paid, because of the way they scaled, about $5.45 a day in order to accommodate this workload dynamically without big budgets, without big uh, capital risk, and um, very dynamically. Now, 
T2 instances uh, have a little bit different wrinkle, and they're very, uh, I shouldn't say small, they're actually very powerful instances, but they have certain performance metrics that are, that are crucial here. And in this case, the T2 small is actually a smaller unit, a smaller unit of granularity that you can scale. And if you want to get closer to that line of your demand, you can actually do that by um, benchmarking different instances and then potentially dynamically scaling there. In this case, this customer saved, I think it was almost like 60% or around 60%, which you know, wasn't a lot of money to begin with for what they actually did, which was very impressive. But in addition to that, it allowed for them to make changes to their fleet based on new tests they ran, based on new assumptions they made, very quickly and immediately save money. Something that if you set your heart or your, your money on a certain piece of hardware in the quote-unquote old world is not really possible. So those are the sort of things I want you to think about. How fast do I want to scale? What kind of instances do I want to look at to benchmark? And what do I want to potentially use? And always have in mind, you can make changes as many times as you want. And in, in addition to this, we also have um, a new rule set up that makes granularity in this case, or being more aggressive by being close to the line, a little bit more feasible. And those are new scaling uh, policies. So while in the past you would maybe say something like, if I see 70% VCP utilization across all the instances, start adding one. But what happens is, uh, or what happens if you get a tremendous increase in demand very quickly? While you launch that one additional instance, there might already be demand that already shuts or shoots through the roof there. And you can now, with new scaling policies, actually set up how aggressively you want to scale. So as you sh uh, turn on an instance, if you say turn on one instance when CPU utilization is over 50, as that uh, process happens, if you already shoot, the roof of, uh, shoot through the roof of 70 or 80% CPU utilization, the autoscaler can automatically uh, look at that and then it will automatically um, apply the most aggressive rule you set up in your escalation policy. So something else that might be relevant for you that want to be very aggressive and maybe save more money um, and be more quick and dynamic than you could even be before in AWS. Uh, two other deployment options I'm going to go over really quickly. Uh, again, they deserve their own talk, but things that are very important to our customers are effective deployment and uh, efficient uh, deployment and something that, again, helps them automate that process. And one tool that we came out with, I think about a year ago or so, is Code Deploy. So Code Deploy is something that allows you to create these hooks into your dev staging and production environment so that the Code Deploy service automatically knows which instances are handling uh, which one of those stages or which one of those environments. And then Code Deploy can also be, since it is an AWS service, uh, integrated with IAM and its uh, availability zone um, aware, and it can help you actually deploy different or new packages automatically into those environments, always aware of scaling efficiently, not just across instances, so as to maximize the underlying resources, but also across availability zones, so as to help you with avail availability and reliability. It also has on-premises support. This is something you will see increasingly often uh, with services that we're launching, which is, for example, Code Deploy. Another one would be called Run Command. A lot of these tools have support via agents, most of the time, uh, for you to be actually able to handle AWS resources as well as on-premises resources or anywhere else uh, where you install those agents to be managed and visible and configurable through one pane. So uh, something that I encourage you to look at as well, if you work for an enterprise, if you're somebody that either looks at migration over time or a hybrid scenario, a lot of tools support that, and increasingly more will. Uh, one thing I want to mention again real quickly is uh, containers. So there's two two big benefits around containers that you can uh, deploy on top of an EC2 instance fleet. One is obviously getting the most out of the underlying resources. Even in addition to just right-sizing the EC2 instance, if you have smaller microservices, packing those on there. Pretty interesting um, benefit. The more important benefit I see is actually helping, especially large customers, streamline their deployment process. Because of unifying on this one platform, having big development teams that can now integrate, deploy, and put into production things a lot faster. So it's pretty interesting, as opposed to the startups I worked with with a lot of other inventions or maybe new uh, trends or something like that, uh, this one, containers for the development process and deployment process, is something that's taken up more and more and increasingly by large enterprises because the bigger the development team, the bigger the benefit here. Last but not least, and I know I'm talking really fast. I'm really sorry. I'm trying to get it all into one hour, and then I'm still available for questions as well. But last but not least, I wanted to talk to you about cost optimization. So now you have understood how to choose your instance, start your instance, set it up in a way that is secure. You have your VPC. You can already connect to it through your own data center, all these things. 
as you start deploying more and more, and as you start deploying things into production, we also want to make sure, again, via CloudWatch and other things, that you run as cost efficiently and as performant as possible. So CloudWatch has things where for on-demand instances, you can scale automatically with auto-scaling and ELB, but CloudWatch has things that can also alert you of instances that run at very low utilization over a long period of time, EBS volumes that have been detached for a long period of time. And then again, your actions can be something like right away shutting it down, or if you don't want to upset a developer or somebody else, maybe at least sending a notification to the owner asking what's going on with this. Do you want to shut this down? One of our biggest goals for tooling is not just to make it more efficient and agile for you, but to save you money. It's a real big tenet of ours to help you be as efficient as possible. So CloudWatch is really important there for on-demand instances. But if you have workloads that are more, uh, that have higher longevity, so maybe let's say it's a production database. It needs to be on all the time. It, it, it just, it, it, not only should it be on all the time, it needs to be on all the time. That thing should not be down. If you run something consistently and persistently on AWS, we have reserved instances that allow for you to reserve that capacity, which is one of the benefits a reserved instance has. But then in addition to that, for you uh, or for um, the fact that you're reserving this capacity and agreeing to using it for a year or three years or whatever it might be, we're extending um, a pretty severe discount for reserved instances to you. So for three ERIs, you can get up to 70% off or over 70% off of what the on-demand price would be if you actually run this thing 24-7. So reserved instances come with two benefits. Um, over time, we have learned that some customers only value one or the other benefit. So we have a new feature that might be interesting to a lot of you, which is with a reserved instance, you can either get both of those benefits by being very prescriptive about which instance you want, where you want it, and we reserve those capacity for you in the specific availability zone, the specific chipset, this exact instance. And you can get the, the billing benefit or you can have the billing benefit a little bit more widely applied, maybe to an entire region. So it's not so specific to an availability zone, but therefore you uncheck a flag that we introduced a couple of months ago, which is the capacity reservation. So there's a lot of customers that want to forfeit the capacity reservation. They say, this is running anyway. It's there. It's fine. I don't need it, the capacity to be reserved. I just want the billing benefit to be extended to the entire region. They can uncheck that. So you can either have both the benefits or one benefit more broadly applied. So maybe one thing to note for all the more experienced customers here, reserved instances have both of those, and one can be, or one can be turned off nowadays in order to extend the other. Spot instances are a very interesting concept. So as we have all these instances, all these regions, all these availability zones across the world, we always need to stay ahead of demand. And as we try to do that, we have usually some extra or access capacity. And you can actually bid on that capacity for the price that you want to bid, whatever that might be. You can get up to 90% off. So for big data workloads, maybe something that isn't uh, crucial because it doesn't um, uh, fulfill uh, real-time demand. So it's not like a web server or something. It's maybe a bunch of data you want to crunch through before next Friday. You can bid on a bunch of uh, capacity, enormous amounts of capacity in the AWS cloud. And as you're outbid, you might lose a few instances and might do a little bit less processing. But you can be pretty sure, usually, depending on your timeline, that you can, by the end of the week or whatever it is, crunch through all that data at a fraction of the cost. And we have a lot of customers doing genomic sequencing, uh, certain Hadoop jobs, uh, rendering jobs for cartoons or movies, uh, all those types of things at a fraction of the cost. And it's a very interesting uh, value proposition to customers that have those types of applications or workloads. And then lastly, we have dedicated instances and dedicated hosts. That's the last thing I'm going to go over today. And Dedicated instances and dedicated hosts are born out of a need. Again, we saw from you, our customers, feedback we took to heart, which is for certain uh, regulated workloads, maybe regulation that was written 10, 20, 30 years ago before the cloud or without the cloud in mind, they still have regulation that demands that they are on dedicated hardware. No other customer, nobody else but them can be on that piece of hardware. If you have that regulatory requirement, you can launch dedicated instances. Sometimes also another one would be, aside from regulation, maybe a contract you have with an ISV in order to run this piece of application or software, whatever it might be, on a piece of hardware, you need to be the only guest on there and you need to have that entire thing. And you can launch dedicated instances and dedicated instances are basically our promise to you that whatever dedicated instance you launch, behind the scenes we will pack on the same hardware and there will be no other guests but you on that hardware. So they're a little bit more costly, but therefore you get that promise and you get that contractual obligation. Dedicated hosts uh, take that basically uh, in a little bit different fashion. So as opposed to us saying just launch a dedicated instance and we do it behind the scenes, 
you actually get an entire dedicated host and you're the one specifically launching instances onto that host. And where that oftentimes comes into play is, for example, those ISVs that want to know sometimes in their contract still, if you want to, for example, extend your enterprise agreement with a, a large ISV, in order to put those enterprise agreement licenses you already purchased into the cloud, at times you're required to actually know what the physical cores are on that machine, what the exact physical makeup is. And with dedicated hosts, you have exactly that visibility and the option to license an entire host and then place instances on top of that. So those are offerings that uh, are born out of a need that our customers had and that give you side by side the full flexibility of on-demand, the scale and cost effectiveness of spot, the cost effectiveness and the security of being able to run uh, as many instances as you have in reserved instances, as well as being able to extend enterprise licenses or accommodate your regulatory requirements all side by side in AWS. So a lot of information. I apologize for talking fast. Uh, I'm going to say one more thing about spot instances and then I'll let you go and then I'm available for questions. One thing to note about spot instances is it's a, I think it's called in English a secondary market or something like that. So you have a bid price. The bid price is actually not necessarily what you pay. Your bid price is the price you're potentially willing to pay up to this point. And then there's a market price, price, which is sort of the last fulfilled bid. You always pay the market price until the market price exceeds whatever your bid price is, at which point your request for additional instances or for running instances is no longer fulfilled. Should you ever be outbid because there is more on-demand demand and we fulfill that first or something like that? you get a two-minute warning before your instances shut down. So you can, for Hadoop jobs, for example, uh, go back to the last milestone or check mark something, or if you're heavily containerized and flexible, you might even be able to move the uh, workload off in those two minutes. But for spot, you bid your price that you're willing to pay, and you pay the price that's the market price. And only when that approaches your bid price do you pay that, and only when that market price exceeds it would you actually lose instances. We also have a different feature that's called Spot Fleet that enables you to be even more abstract and say, I just need a certain amount of cores and memory. Just look for the cheapest instances in the AWS cloud in a certain region, and you can have certain constraints. And Spot, um, and, um, Spot Fleet will actually do all that administration for you. So a lot of information. I know it went really fast. Again, I apologize, but these slides will be up on SlideShare, and I put a couple of additional slides in here for additional resources for you to read further about EC2, how to scale uh, or how to uh, apply auto scaling and be more nimble, um, how to take the next step to uh, labs and training and certification so that you can become more versed in uh, AWS overall. And then I lastly just wanted to thank you for showing up. I really appreciate it. I'm available for questions. And please uh, fill in your evaluation so that I can make sure that whoever is the next audience uh, actually gets all their questions addressed. Thanks very much.